as a child or perhaps even as a parent, you might remember spending time learning about fire safety. Um, as a teacher, you might have taught ch your children the importance of fire safety, and particularly in the event of a fire in your home. Uh, one of the most important steps in home fire safety is to have an escape plan. To make sure you know that in the event of a fire, where uh, the exits are, how you're going to get out, and of course you tell your children uh, where you'll meet. And so I'm sure perhaps you showed them, or maybe in school they learned about the importance of fire safety. To make sure that you know the exits, that you know where to meet, that you know that you're supposed to crawl, not walk, because the smoke will get into your lungs. Friends, this morning in this passage, Jesus is providing his disciples with a fire escape plan, if you will. He is telling them and giving them the plans of escape, not for some unforeseeable event like a house fire, but for a predictable event, one for which will happen which they need to be prepared. And so Jesus unfolds in Mark's gospel uh, the plan, if you will, for the church on the escape from God's wrath that will be poured out in Jerusalem. We're going to think about this in God's word this morning. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Now, last week we considered part of that, and we'll go over that in a moment. We're going to begin this week in verse 14. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it does not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Well, we've been considering this passage, what is sort of famously known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, it shows up in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, and here in Mark's Gospel, really relatively the same in both, in all three Gospels. And just as a way of reminder, again, uh, I mentioned last week, but perhaps you weren't here or you weren't listening to me, which is fine. Um, Alistair, 
Alistair Begg, in his sermons on Mark 13, had a very pithy little statement which I found to be very helpful, uh, for which is my sort of guiding principle as I'm preaching through these sort of difficult passages. He said, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Uh, the, the plain things, the, the things that you can understand plainly about this passage, what are the main things that you need to kind of give yourselves to thinking about? And so that's our goal and hope. We're not going to get muddied down in the waters of, of debate over these issues, I will present my understanding, and you can take it or leave it. But I want you to understand that biblical prophecy has a sort of an already but not yet tension in it. That is that some of this has been fulfilled, and some of it sort of awaits a fuller fulfillment. Some of it, many Old Testament prophecies, were fulfilled in the person work of Jesus Christ. He is the new Israel. He is the one to which all the Old Testament prophecies about Israel pointed. He's the fulfillment of all those things. There, there's no really question about that. Jesus Christ says, I came to fulfill the law. Every bit of it. Not just a little. I am the fulfillment of the law. And so lays at the heart then is to try to understand what, where are we in the, sort of, uh, uh, the timeline of all of these sort of events. Where are we? Are we in the quote-unquote last days, the end times? Are we living in them? What I think here this is not to be dogmatic, not to give ourselves into sort of a, a sort of a robust dogmatism that says this is the way we must believe about the end times. It must line up with our system, whatever system that may be premillennialism, amillennialism, or something in between. And if you don't sort of believe that system, then you're sort of outside of orthodox Christianity. I don't think that's particularly helpful. And so considering then the sort of uh, large amount of debate and confusion over these passages and others like them over the last 2,000 years, I think that as a congregation and as individual Christians, it's best here just to sort of give ourselves to the main plain teaching of Scripture and sort of allow the debate for another day. That is, that God cares more about our holiness than whether or not you can sort of piece together all the, the puzzle of the end times. Our focus isn't so much on figuring out what the, the days are like and, and planning out when Jesus is coming, but knowing the fact that Jesus is coming. At any moment, at any day, Jesus will come. And so we want to allow the main thrust of this passage really to be the main thrust of our lives and our application today. So last week we considered in Mark's gospel, if you will, some non-signs of the end times. Non-signs of the end. Now, I know that often when you consider these passages, I hear quoted often these verses in relation to the end. But Jesus clearly spells out in verses 13 through verses 3 through 13 that these are not the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem but rather are the kind of events that you should expect throughout human history and 
frankly, we have 2,000 years of history since Jesus spoke these words to sort of give evidence to that reality. There have been rumors of wars. There have been earthquakes. There have been false prophets and false teachers arise. And so Jesus' words were or have been fulfilled in that way. And, And one thing that's helpful to remember as we sort of dive back into this passage is that Jesus is referring here to the destruction of the temple. The destruction of Jerusalem, which we considered last week to be fulfilled in 70 A.D. But what I want you to think about in this particular passage this morning is that Jesus' point is to prepare his disciples for the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which will occur in a matter of decades, and to encourage and remind us of a watchful, hopeful, and joyful encouragement that should mark true followers of Jesus. That is, that true followers of Jesus are not caught up in eschatological fervor about the end times. We're, we're not looking at the clock and trying to be doomsdayers at the doomsday clock, right? You all remember that from a few decades ago. But rather, we are watching and preparing our hearts and lives for the immediate and imminent return of Jesus. And so what we want to do this morning is consider first what Jesus means and how they find their fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and then ultimately glean some principles and application for our lives today. So to begin with, let's just sort of consider what does this passage mean? What is it that Jesus is saying? Mark records, records these words of Jesus. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Now, you want to remember and sort of back up a little bit, if you will. Look back up to verse 4, 13, 4. You remember that Jesus' disciples pulled Jesus aside. Well, four of them did. Peter, James, John, and Andrew pulled him aside and says, look, Jesus, you've predicted the destruction of the temple. When will this happen? And what will the signs be of its destruction? Um, And and what Jesus started with were those sort of non-signs that we just considered. Um, The the sort of non-signs, the the earthquakes and the the, uh, nation going up against nation and and the various kind of cosmic uh, attacks. We, we, don't, we don't really so much focus on those, he says. Don't, don't be, those aren't the signs. And so what he, he shifts to in verse 14 is the sign. I want you to notice something in this passage. Look with me at verse 14. But when you see, it's emphatic. He, he's emphasizing when you. He is writing, he, he, he is first and foremost speaking to his disciples, not to 21st century Christians, okay? Don't read yourself into that story of Jesus' words here. Jesus is first and foremost speaking to his disciples, and he says, you will see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. 
And so we must conclude then that there is something about this abomination of desolation, which we'll get to in a moment, which I know is where the sort of the difficulty in this passage is. What the heck is that? What is, what is that? Think about this. We have to understand that this abomination of desolation had to be something that the disciples would have seen and recognized as the sign to them to get out of town. It would have had to have been significant enough for them to say, whoa, here it is, we need to go. And so that's what we want to think about as we think about not only Mark and the original disciples, but also Mark's audience, who he's writing to, in 50 AD, some 20 years before the destruction of the temple. People who were far removed from Jerusalem and the events that are detailed in this passage. From this point, then, we will move to today. So what is the abomination of desolation? What is it? What does that mean? Well, when Jesus spoke those words, it would have rang in the ears of the disciples. It wouldn't have been as unfamiliar as perhaps it is to you today. Do you hear that? Maybe that's the first time you've ever heard that word, abomination of desolation. Well, if you're an end times uh, uh, expert or, or you know enthusiast, of course you know that you've probably invested much time and, and read much about this abomination of desolation and, and what it would have been. Well, the phrase itself is an allusion we think is best to Daniel. The Daniel chapter 9 and 11 and 12 where Daniel prophesies the coming of an abomination in the temple that will cause desolation. So William Lane, a, a commentator on Mark's gospel, he writes this, which he kind of interprets what this abomination of desolation, the phrase means. He says this, abomination of desolation means the desolating sacrilege or the appalling sacrilege. That is, it's an event that would create such an appalling sort of gut, nasty, like, oh, that's, that's wrong, that's not right, in the, in the hearts of the Jews that they would abandon the temple. It would be so clear to them that this is, this is so defiling that we must leave the temple. And 150 years before Jesus spoke these words, that happened. When Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, temple and he set up a throne to Zeus and sacrificed a pig. In 1 Maccabees chapter 1 and verse 54, the author chronicles the event in writing, Now on the 15th day of Chislev, on the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege. You hear a, an abomination of desolation on the altar of burnt offering. They also built offer, uh, altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense on the doors of the houses and in the streets. The book of the law they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone adhering to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who found were found month after month in, in the towns. And on the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifices on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. It was a desolating time in the life of, of Israel. And the disciples would have been familiar with it. They would have known it. They would have understood Daniel 9 to have been fulfilled in 150 B.C., give or take a year or two. 
They would have understood that what Antiochus Epiphanes did was a fulfillment of Daniel 9. But what Jesus is saying is that no, that was not perhaps a partial fulfillment of it, but yet there was an awaiting of a other desolation to the temple, something greater that was yet to come. As Lane continues in his commentary, he writes, the entire section is to be interpreted considering the events which occurred in the turbulent and chaotic period A.D. 66-70. to That is, that Lane and other scholars have understood that this passage is ultimately fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. And that something prior to that time in 70 A.D. was an caused the abomination of desolation. So what could it have been? Well, there's several options that it could have been. I'll sort of outline just a few of them for your own souls. There was an attempt in A.D. 39 and 40 to erect a statue of a person and worship it in the temple. There was an attempt by Pontius Pilate to have Roman soldiers mark into Jerusalem displaying their standards, which the Jewish can Jewish people considered idolatrous. There were atrocities committed in the temple by zealots under John Gershala and Eleazar, son of Simon, in AD 67 and 68. There's the role of Titus in the destruction of Jerusalem and his for- forceful entrance into the temple sanctuary in AD 70. There's the Roman soldiers setting up their standards in the temple and sacrificing them as they proclaimed Titus emperor or lord. Or there's the events leading up to the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman army in AD 70. Or there's the destruction of the temple itself. Maybe that was the abomination. Or perhaps there is yet still a future event involving the Antichrist and the preceding second coming of Christ. This is how many have thought about that. And I would imagine many of you are sort of on that last And my hope is to demonstrate to you that that is not true. That this passage is about 70 AD and not a future passage or a future abomination of desolation. Because nowhere in this passage does Jesus, nor in the accompanying parallel passages, ever refer to a third temple. Nowhere does Jesus allude or explicitly say that there will be yet a third temple built where where sacrifices will be resumed. And so it's best, I think, to understand this passage as being fulfilled in some way, in some manner that we don't know explicitly, but would have been known to the disciples living there in Jerusalem that it is time to get out of town. As Eusebius wrote, in the 4th century, that there were oracles given by which were clues to the church in Jerusalem to get out of town. Which we believe seems to be what Jesus is referring to here. The disciples knew it was coming, and they prepared to leave. And we understand Jesus here is outlining the necessity to get out of town. And so regardless of how you understand this passage, clearly I want to see sort of freedom in that, that you could understand that this sort of is a future event that still waits. That's fine. I remain unconvinced by that. 
Or, if you're convinced that it was fulfilled, what kind of application then can we glean for our lives? But before we do that, I want you to just notice here sort of this necessity of flight that Jesus outlines for us in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Now, you want to consider that if this was a sign to the disciples that they were to get out of town, that the immediate departure from Jerusalem, Jesus is saying to them, listen, don't stay around and fight for Jerusalem. Don't stay and fight for the land. Get out of town. I don't care about that. I'm coming to destroy the city. I don't want you to preserve the city. So what Jesus is telling his disciples is, listen, listen. I am coming to the city to destroy it as an act of judgment upon the nation for rejecting me. And so we must kind of conclude that, that Jesus is saying, get out of town because, look, I'm coming to judge this place. Don't fight for it. And history would only tell the carnage that awaited the city of Jerusalem. Jo Josephus, a, uh, a Jewish historian writing during this time, chronicling this vast holocaust that occurred in Jerusalem leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD says this. Listen, listen just to, this is just a snippet of, it was, it was so grotesque. Just listen to this. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were filled with women and children dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine. And fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. And indeed the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight. And produced pestilent stench. Which was a hindrance to those who would make rushes out of the city and find refuge. Josephus would go on to record that over 1.1 million Jews were killed during the siege on Jerusalem. More than 100,000 were sold into slavery. He recorded that the Romans would crucify more than 500 people per day. In fact, they ran out of crosses. They were crucifying at such an extensive rate. The sight was horrendous, and it was a measure of God's just judgment on the rebellious people for rebelling against him and rejecting his son, for crucifying him for what they wanted, peace to dwell. They cared more about their relationship with Caesar than they did with their God. And it is a warning to us who we're willing to cozy up to and have peace. And often it is a cost. Jesus goes on to say, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Jesus is telling them, listen, these days are going to be horrible and horrendous and difficult. I want you to point, point something here. Jesus says that 
that this will be a terrible event. And I know this is hard to reconcile. This refers to 70 AD. And look, there have been Holocaust and tragedies and, and mass murder and awful, awful, awful things, atrocities. So, so, so how could Jesus' words be true? Jesus is using hyperbole to emphasize the, 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 the sort of the, the vastness of this sort of destruction that is going to be coming upon. But I want you to notice what he says. And never will be again, implying that there will be days after this great tribulation. Implying that there will be a time period in which there will be continued tribulation. There will be a time period after this great tribulation, which Jesus refers to in this passage, where there will be continued tribulation up until the end. So if this passage truly does mark the end of human history and the the great tribulation that's referred to in a premillennial system, then how is it that Jesus says there'll be tribulation to follow? Though I think it's right to understand this passage as having been fulfilled in 70 AD. Well, I want to move on now. I want to shift a little bit into application. There's much we could set and debate, we could think about, I hope it's just stirred your heart a little bit to think. I hope it's just sort of pricked you to study more God's word and to think more about it. But I I just want to encourage you here that regardless of how you understand this passage to be fulfilled, whether it be fulfilled in 70 AD or in some future eschatological way, the point that Jesus is making here is clear. Did you see it in verse 23? Be on guard. Jesus is saying, regardless of how you understand this passage, watchfulness is the thread that runs throughout this passage. I mean, he has said it over and over and over and over in this passage, all the way from the beginning. He says, look, be alert, stay awake, watch what you're doing here. See that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard in verse 9. He continues, be on your guard in verse 23. But in those days after tribulation, he says, be on your guard, be awake. But concerning that hour, no one knows. Verse 33, be on your guard. Keep awake. I mean, Jesus is, I think, clear, nonetheless, on what the application for our lives is, is that we need to be awake. We need to be watchful. We need to guard our hearts. And as your pastor, my goal here is not to sort of lead you into sort of endless speculation about the end times or or bring about sort of a dogmatism in the end times that, that you must believe this way, but to prepare you for the arrival of Jesus. To ready you, the troops, for the arrival of the Lord's day, which could draw near at any moment. J. Edwards comments on this passage saying that Mark does not seek to provide a timetable or blueprint for the future. Let the reader understand. So much as to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the presence. Friends, I just found this, that, that, that just particularly helpful as I've thought through this. Jesus here is preparing our hearts for his coming. Jesus wants us to be ready. And and Satan loves us to be muddied up in the waters of confusion over future events rather than giving ourselves to holiness. And so let's consider just sort of three applications that we can take away, three gleanings from this passage that we can take home to our lives. First, be joyful and hopeful for the Lord's return is imminent. Be joyful and hopeful for the Lord's return is imminent. 
our hearts are not in our laps. Our heads are not hanged low. We are not in despair or despondency, but we have hearts uplifted with expectation for the future. We cannot wait until the Lord returns. We, We cannot. And so our gaze is not on this world and the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our lives, but rather our eyes are affixed upon him and his imminent return. We know that when Christ returns, he will consummate all things. We know that when Jesus comes, he will set all things right. All things will be restored. This is our This is our longing. We know this world is not getting better. We know that that our lives are never going to be finally right. Whatever right means. We know that this world is not built to sustain our We have been called to another world, another life that this broken world would never satisfy. As Paul says in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. The creation, the trees and the grass and the birds are 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 waiting, eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You and I. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who had subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves the same who are the fruits, first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. That's the hope that we give ourselves, brothers and sisters. We must live with this kind of hopeful expectation. That's what we live by. We, we long for the Lord to come and consummate all things. That's why we sing, come Lord, quickly. give ourselves to this. Secondly, we must be encouraged for the Lord reigns over human history, even your history. Friends, I just wonder, what are your fears? Is it war? Is it tribulation? Is it earthquakes? Is it natural disasters? Is it this next president that our country has appointed, what he might perhaps say to enthrall us in yet another war? Are your fears perhaps more subtle? Your health, your finances, your neighbors, your neighborhood, your family? What must garner encouragement from the truth, we must, excuse me, garner encouragement from the truth that this passage teaches. The principle that we can sort of glean from this is that God is sovereign over human history. 
Jesus says, this is going to happen. Because my Father is going to make it happen. And there is a sense in where we just sort of rest in the unfolding of human history is for God's glory and his good. And I just wonder, as a Christian, do you really believe that? Or do you have like a small view of God's sovereignty? You know, God's sovereign over big things. You know, planets and things like that. Yeah, he's kind of in charge. Yeah, but he doesn't really care so much about my life. He's not in charge of anything in my life. I mean, I'm kind of free. I can do whatever I want. He's not involved. Oh, friends, we must see that every day, every hour, every minute, every second of our lives is purposed by God and for his glory. I've met many miserable Christians who have not realized and grappled with that truth. That the sufferings that you have faced, the trials and tribulations in your life, the sufferings that, that crush you, those came from God and His will. And they were for His glory. And there's a sense in which the, the burden is lifted. When you recognize the source is from a good God. Friend, you haven't been dealt some bad hand by karma. It, it, don't, don't believe that garbage. That what comes around goes around. Don't, don't give yourself to that garbage that is not true. Some mystical cosmic source that moves evil and good around. No, the things in your life has been brought by God's good hand. We don't have the answers to why we suffer. We don't, we don't have the precise whys, but we have the one who. That is God. And so we rest in this. We feel our weight lifted off of our chest when we re realize that the, the dashboard view of our life or, or really what we see in the rear view mirror of our life has been brought and purposed and planned by a good God. Because that is the God as revealed in the Bible. That he is sovereign over human history. Third and finally, be watchful for the Lord is coming to you. Brothers and sisters, this passage is brimming with these exhortations to watchfulness. As I've already said, trials and tribulations deserve such watchfulness. For they create a ripe and fertile soil for despondency and despair. They create opportunity for temptation and for us to go away we must not think that we are immune to the attacks of satan but remind ourselves that we are his targets he would love to see nothing but to see you fall in your sin and so we must give our attention and alertness to the sin of our hearts and the temptations that evil lays before us friends we are living in the end time in fact, we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Christians have been saying that, that these are the end times because we believe that Jesus can come and we must be ready. And I just wonder, what will you be doing when the Lord returns? 
What, what will he find you busy about in your life when he comes again? Well, what will it be that you have given yourself to when he comes? Friends, this kind of watchfulness over our hearts is what it means to follow Jesus. At the basic level, this is just discipleship. Discipling others and helping others follow Jesus. This is what it means to follow him, is to be watchful and ready. To not look for other messiahs. Well, I conclude then with this from Edwards again. The mark of faithfulness is watchfulness. Not foretelling the future, but obedience in the present. You should meditate on that again. The mark of faithfulness is watchfulness. Not foretelling the future, but obedience in the present. Friends, that's Jesus' point in this passage. I hope you see that. I hope you give yourself to that. That our focus isn't trying to sort of predict what the future will hold. But rest that that future has God as the sovereign Lord over it. And we wait expectantly for the Lord's return. And so we say with the saints, come, Lord, quickly. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give you glory and praise. Father, these things are great for us to think about. They are often confusing. We can be discouraged. Father, we pray that we would give ourselves truly to your word. Father, we pray that you would guard us and give us a watchfulness. Father, I pray for your people in this congregation not be given into endless speculation, but rest solely upon the truth we have heard in your word, that you are coming soon, and we can't wait. We give you the glory for this, we pray in Jesus.